and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners yes. across this fine, fine land. Yeah. Fine conglomerate uh, patchwork quilted land. And uh, on the podcast at greenmajority.ca, I am David Hostetter. We have Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? We have uh, Saren Kaster. And we, do we also have Lauren Latour? Yeah, Hi. Excellent. It is the last show before Christmas, and I am certain that uh, there will be jollity and merriment. On on this program, or just generally speaking? As a result of this program across the entire, yeah. The world. Wow. Yeah, whatever. Wow, okay. we're, we're, we're really bringing it this, mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And wow. we're going to talk about COP25, which ended last week. Yeah, well, which I Jollyment. Like, so much jollyment. If, that jollyment. Was, if there was one phrase for COP25, I think jollyment is definitely... It would be a neologism. Yeah, that's the word. Jollyment. And uh, Peter Julian put for putting forward a new Green New Deal motion in the House in Canada. In Canada. So you could say that is Julianment. Wow. Yeah. Um, India <laughs> India going off coal potentially, uh, some climate litigation, and then some classic corporate greenwashing. And uh, Saren wants to talk about privilege in the final segment, as well as perhaps some Christmas tips. So there we are. It was uh, yeah. It was uh, just a, a special request combined with uh, some holiday thoughts. I, like usually during the holiday, I've I've in previous years I've actually we've prepared stuff or we've had big roundtables. There is a bit of a green majority tradition with some mm. leaving some food thought for the mm-hmm. holidays. So yeah, we just have a little bit of that at the end. Doubtless, doubtless. So I'm going to drop right into this COP25 discussion. Now. Yes, please do. So, a week of uh, weeping, disruption, security crackdown, and arrogant earplugging condescension has ended in failure, as the 25th Conference of Parties was unable to produce any meaningful outcome regarding international cooperation on the climate crisis, besides further galvanizing the worldwide grassroots environment and social justice movement to take even harder to the streets in 2020. COP25 was originally to be held in Brazil before being canceled by far-right President Jair Bolsonaro and was then moved to Chile, but was canceled there amidst ongoing anti-neoliberal protests until it ended up in Spain, where local governments quickly cobbled together the conference which lar- with large tax-incentivized donations from some of the country's biggest organizations responsible for fueling the, cl- the climate crisis like Endesa, which is linked to projects that have caused abuse to indigenous people in Latin America. It is, of course, the 25th such conference that have been held year after year to reduce emissions that have only continued to climb. This could have something to do with companies like Shell and Chevron being allowed to organize events at the conference, such corporations having actually gained influence in the proceedings over the years while greenwashing themselves through what Greta called clever accounting and creative PR. While those facing the impacts of climate change today are condescended to, bullied, or left out. The United States played a particularly parasitic role in this year's negotiations, watering down the agreement even as they're pulling out of Paris. As many rich countries said, they would only help pay for disaster support if poorer countries agreed to their carbon offset markets. As Pasco Sabido told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, quote, the biggest polluters are are sponsoring these climate talks from fossil fuel companies, the banks that finance them, as well as many others like airlines. It's not just that the biggest polluters are using this for huge greenwashing opportunities. You see their logos logos all over the COP, but they are also using this to influence the talks themselves. We have these companies completely wrapping themselves in the colors of the UN, pretending to be green whilst underneath the dirty reality is their climate criminals. But uh, lots of these companies have also been involved in huge human rights abuses and workers' abuses across Latin America, which underlines the neocolonial nature of climate change and its colonial roots. Because a lot of these companies from Spain are very active in ex-colonies in Latin America, keeping those relationships going. As Harjit Singh of Action Aid said at the conference, quote, This process was designed to deliver global justice. This is a place where Tuvalu is as powerful as the European Union or the United States. But the constant bullying of these big countries are making this progress, uh, this process worse than useless. Their bullying hasn't stopped. They're not letting us make any progress in this space. There is no substitute for action. And what rich countries are doing, they are creating an illusion by act, uh, they are creating an illusion of action by just talking. When we demand action, they offer reports. When we demand money, they offer workshops. 
this is not going to help people who are suffering right now. The disagreement between the conferencing parties hinged on a measure that rich countries tended to favor and that indigenous frontline communities, activists, and poorer countries had rejected as a false solution years ago. This is the international carbon trading market whereby polluters can purchase carbon offsets that would allow them to continue polluting. For instance, you can pay to protect a forest somewhere while failing to reduce your own emissions, or you can just pay someone else to reduce theirs. As uh, Assad Raymond said to Amy Goodman, quote, If a country like, for example, the United States or the United Kingdom or the United States, their fair share of effort would be at something like minus 200 by 2030. There is simply no carbon that you can use for an offset. But what's most pernicious here is that the United States and other developed countries block any progress on the help on loss and damage. What they're saying to developing countries is, quote, If you agree to the carbon markets, maybe in there we will give you some share of the profit. And so that is the only thing left on the table. They know it won't deliver emissions reductions. They know it will be devastating to the planet. But for much-needed finance, that's the carrot that's being dangled. And ministers, as they are meeting here, will hold developing countries hostage because they will say, we will only allow conversations about much-needed loss and damage if you allow us to have the carbon markets decision go through. The conference also saw the kettling of protesters and standers-by alike into an outdoor space by security personnel who took away their badges and then returned them the day after appeal, uh, the next day after they appealed. There were also many indigenous protesters specifically criticizing Canada's support for tar sands, as well as the continued plight of indigenous peoples worldwide. Maori Representative Kara Sherwood O'Regan uh, said at the conference, quote, When you silence us, you deny yourselves learning from our ways, and you continue to sideline those who have real solutions for all communities. We are experts on climate. We are the Ketiaki, the stewards of nature. We know the legitimacy of our voices, and it's about time that you recognized it too. Hear our stories, learn our histories, stop taking up space with your false solutions, and get out of our way. Yeah, so I, I, I will say that, uh, that the, to begin that with, uh, with a week of weeping disruption and security crackdown uh, really adds to the level of joy that the show is going to bring. Uh, but uh, to, you, to you, Lauren, first. Um, yeah, no joy to be had here. Um, unfortunately, this was a mess of a cop um, made, made clear by, by David's recap there. Um, decision... Uh, so, so what was basically supposed to happen at this COP was that decisions and sort of like the rule book that, that, that provide actions coming out of Paris was supposed to be completed. Last sort of chapter of it, Article 6, dealing specifically with that with that market trading scheme was supposed to be finalized. Um, issues around loss and damage were supposed to be finalized. So then all of the acting countries can go into COP26 next year in the U.K., and sort of really be able to come forward and be like, okay, this is our new, these are our new ambitious targets. We're presenting them. We're ready to get moving and and then start acting together. Um, and unfortunately, uh, even though the conference went 44 hours over, and and when I say 44 hours, I don't mean like eight. Like it, it's not like people go home at the end of the night um, and come back the next morning at 9 a.m. Like it went 44 hours over, and that was 44 hours of negotiations and people like sleeping on chairs in the conference center to try to get this work done. Um, and, and, and these decisions regardless were pushed to either, um, COP26 next year or, or these intercessional meetings that happen in Bonn in Germany throughout the year to try to get some of the homework done. Um, which is <laughs> obviously problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, honestly coming out of this, um, in addition to sort of like the actual, like real tangible things that need to happen around, dealing with the issues that, that sort of arise around like something like an international market for carbon credits, which is really messed up or, or countries not contributing to loss of damage properly. We need to see the UK as, as the president for next year, step up and do, and do a lot of groundwork um, mirroring what Paris did in the lead up to, to the Paris agreement and the Paris conference. What we saw France do in the lead up to Paris was go and meet with individual countries that they knew could 
Oh, Lauren, we're just, uh, Lauren, if you can hear us, we're just having a little bit of stuttering with the phone line there. Uh, do you want to, maybe we'll get, can we give it a second? We'll just see if we can uh, fix that. Stefan, do you want to yeah. buy us a second here? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so just to, uh, to, to to briefly jump on into the thing I was mentioned, which is the these carbon markets and some of the problems uh, with them. And I, I like the, the point made that, you know, if this is going to be, if you're going to have a carbon market that was reasonable, uh, you would need them to to have so much carbon sequestered that it that there wouldn't be enough carbon in the world to do so. You know, like the idea that, and this is and this is not just an American thing. I want to point out that as much as this clearly was 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 you know the 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 richer nations trying to find ways to buy the way out of this problem, the uh, the fact that they could not uh, make the other parts of this, the fact that that. Canada has spent a lot of time previous up to this pushing for the ability to consider its own sequestration abilities as a part of its carbon conversation, uh, and that was a pretty that was a pretty big thing that that's been pushed by both the Harper government and then the Trudeau government as well because it allows them to sort of appear like they're really getting somewhere. We've got forests. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's, we're just basically want credit for the fact that we're a big open land country, despite that you know per capita we're we're well 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 beyond. Uh, beyond average, um, and in our, our consumption patterns and our CO two CO two patterns, but it's just yeah, it's it's totally um, totally beyond that uh, in, in what we can. It's like so. It's not just the fact that Canadians themselves um, need to need to find some way to do this. We have, we have, like it's a it's a structural problem, right? The, the, if we're going to reduce these emissions, we have to get beyond the concept that that can't come at the cost or, or that can't come at the cost of our own particular way of living right now. You know, I, I don't even want to say, I don't want to buy into the idea that the, that it's a particular livelihood is, is, is you're going to live worse, but like you, you cannot continue to expand highways in Ontario um, and, and get anywhere in regards to then, Oh, I just, you know, I, I, I sponsored a, I sponsored a rainforest in the global South. So I'm okay. That's there's there's that that carbon was going to be sequestered probably anyways, and that's just making things not as bad. Like it's not, it doesn't work that way. Um, and there's a conversation there also about when people talk about net zero as well. What that the def, that's part of the def, de definition problem here is: does that mean you are trying to get credit for for natural habitats? You know, it's not like you know, like if any company, you know, it'd be the kind of thing like the U.S. could then go out and say like, look, we protected part of the Pacific Ocean and that absorbs more carbon than anything, so we're good, everyone. We're going to change it all. And like that's while the, while you can make an argument from a you know from a book's perspective, that doesn't change the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Like we have to be reducing the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, but uh, did we did we solve that problem? Is is Lauren back in line? Um, I, I, I yes. Can you hear me a little? Yes, it's better now. Yeah, totally. Okay, great. Um, I guess yeah. Just <laughs> continuing to dogpile on Article Six and, and and the problem with the market is that it also at this point doesn't not allow for double dipping. So it means that say I re I reduce my carbon, um, and you, David, want to purchase my carbon reductions. There's nothing right now to say officially that we can't both claim my carbon reduction. So mm. it means that although we both might be claiming a reduction of, say, 10 carbon points, we're not actually seeing a global reduction in 20 carbon points, even though both you and I are claiming them. So, it, yeah, there, there are a myriad of issues with, with, this, with this market that, that's currently still under negotiation because it wasn't wrapped up. Basically, what we know coming out of this COP is that we need to see a bunch of groundwork done before COP26 next year. We need um, ministers like Wilkinson coming home and doing a lot of groundwork here to make sure that we can actually come up with an ambitious new target that we can that we can meet theoretically and be ready to present that next year. And we need wealthy nations stepping up to offer their fair share to support loss and damage payments, um, which is sort of that that financial uh, support that we need to be offering to to least developed countries and those who are suffering most from from the effects of climate change. And and also, I think it, this whole fiasco warrants a bigger discussion about whether or not COP, as it's currently laid out, as it's currently structured, is is, is effective anymore. I mean, it's it got us kind of this far in the last 25 years, but like we're, we're in the 11th hour, we're in crunch time. We know we have basically a decade left to get this train turned around or this boat turned around or whatever metaphor you want to use. And, and is a meeting that only happens annually really sufficient at this point? Or do we need to restructure how these meetings happen? Yeah, and and the and of course you know the fact that uh, you know, next year is both the time when you have to come back. Like next year, tw the twenty twenty, it was it was going to be sort of the year. And I think uh, you know looking forward, I think that's ever increasingly more true. You know, I, man, like I would say, 
a a failure in COP26 next year uh, really highlights, I think, the, the, would 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 put a stamp on the sort of that question of of is this the right way? Like, a, 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 if if we get into a place where you get another similar type of thing, where you know you see the 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 lifting up of fossil fuel companies that you did see in, in Spain, and the uh, and the in the pushing down of of civil society who are sort of calling for real real change, and and a failure to to for these these countries to show any sort of real ambition, um, you know, it's going to be a dark place. And it'll be interesting to see, just looking ahead, it will be interesting if there is a different president, what the American delegation would do in, in that year. Because they'd sort of know that their policy would be changing, but wouldn't know how. And it still would be chosen by, by, by Trump. So who knows what that, that would be a whole other other world. But to, to, to begin a pivot towards the next topic, um, I do think that there's some... The, 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 so the question of okay, if if COP isn't the right place to get something done, uh, then then where is? And I think the question has to be all right. Individual countries, individual countries have to you know, and in, in, we have to use our own internal democratic processes uh, to to push a, uh, a you know a, a better solution. And then you know that is exactly what uh, what Peter Julian uh, is is trying to do. So I shall, I shall, I shall. You shall, I shall. All right. So the. <clears throat> The MP for New Westminster Burnaby in British Columbia has put forward a private member's motion in the House for a Canadian Green New Deal. And it reads in part, quote, It is the duty of the government to create a Green New Deal to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition for all communities and workers, to create millions of good high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all Canadians, to invest in Canada's infrastructure and industry to sustainably meet the challenges of the 21st century, to secure for all people of Canada for generations to come clean air and water, climate and community resiliency, healthy food, access to nature, and sustainable environment, to promote justice and equity by stopping current preventing future and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, racialized persons, non-dominant cultural, ethnic, religious, and linguistic communities, immigrants and newcomers, youth, LGBTQ2S plus persons, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, and depopulated rural communities. The motion goes on to call for a 10-year national mobilization to this end, including uh, reference to climate resilience, infrastructure upgrades, smart grids, energy efficiency, public transportation, community-led health programs, and international aid. It reads, quote, a Green New Deal must be developed through transparent and, and inclusive consultation, collaboration, and partnership with indigenous peoples, frontline and vulnerable communities, labor unions, worker cooperatives, civil society groups, academia, and businesses. Included in the motion section on how to achieve its objectives <clears throat> are references to public and worker-owned enterprises assisted by public and private investment, making the government write the complete social impact of emissions into its laws, localized democracy, uh, family-sustaining wages and appropriate benefits for all Canadians, a focus on union jobs, labor rights, and local manufacturing, real Indigenous consultation, freeing business people from domestic and international monopolies, and, quote, providing all Canadians with high-quality health care, affordable, safe, and adequate housing, economic security, and access to clean water, clean air, healthy and affordable food, and nature. Yeah, to Lord and to you first. Yeah, um, I mean, this was a really, really exciting motion to see come out. Um, it's something that Peter Julian, um, who's an MP based out in PC, he announced he would be he would be tabling and putting forward as soon as he um, was reelected. Um, and and at first glance, I mean, I, I read through the text quite quickly the other day, and it looks really promising. There's obviously always room for improvement. Um, I mean, a little more language around things like migrant rights and and sort of justice around around borders would be great. But it's a really, really fantastic and, and quite thorough um, document, even even given its brevity. It's, it's quite short. It's only two pages if people want to read it. Um, it's really great. Uh, specifically, I really love a, an aspect that he, he points at, specific, uh, that, that the program, whatever it is, should be developed sort of through transparent, inclusive consultation, collaboration, partnerships with Indigenous peoples and frontline and vulnerable communities, labor unions, worker cooperatives, civil society groups, and academia and businesses. So he's really, really looking to build a, a Green New Deal sort of by and for the people, which is exciting, especially given the fact that the, the Green Deal that came out of Europe last week was um, not quite as thorough or, um, or sort of wide-reaching in its justice-based lens. So this is really exciting to me. Um, right now, uh, last I checked, it has sort of 15 MPs who have seconded it. There can be up to 20. 
um, which is great. So, so there's a little bit of support from, from peers in the House. Um, unfortunately, though, all of those who have seconded this motion so far have been NDP um, MPs. So, so we're not getting that sort of cross-partisan support that we need at this point, which is, which is disappointing. Um, I, I would have hoped that at least the Green Party would have stepped up and, and expressed some support for a plan this thorough and this wide-reaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I believe um, I believe he tabled a very similar or identical motion uh, in the previous uh, in the previous um, sit sitting, I guess it's called. Um, and and so it's it, this is a this is a, this is a rebirth of of that bill, and and, and at a time that um, uh, that you know that where, where some momentum could be gained. You know, I I think it's interesting that you know to, to put it out this early, I think is a good is a good sort of goalpost. Um, to sort of be like, look, this is what we're shooting for, uh, especially you know as we move towards whatever the first liberal government uh, liberal budget of this next uh, next term will be, uh, it's a good sort of place to get those get this sort of holistic approach towards climate change on the agenda and in the conversation, and so yeah, and so uh, yeah, I'm with you. I f- sort of fear that that without you know tripartisan support, you know, without like the real thing would be would it would be if a few of the really the, the, you know the leading liberal voices would would come out and support this and and unfortunately I think in most in other in other democracies around the world that would be a much more common thing to see a, you know see a more a more some of the the, the, the more green-minded liberals coming out and supporting this but the way you know the way our system works it's any sort of dissent gets you seemingly evicted from the from the party um, but you know but 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 it is I, I think when it comes to as, as a uh, from the prospect of the concept of saying here is what is good enough, it then puts into contrast or not good enough, but this is this is at least a decent standard. Again, there's there's certainly everything could be improved, but it is a but if that's the sort of sits there as the as the as where we're go, as a version of what we're shooting for a little bit, then what comes out in the in the in the in the budget will be sort of compared to that. And and I hope that what it can serve as is a way to you know to, to pull to pull whatever that intention original budget to be towards it as a uh, as a, as a more holistic understanding of, of of how to deal with climate change. Given that you know what's incredible right now, and I'll, as my listen to my last point, and I'll throw to you, uh, Lauren, is just how much we are investing in uh, in infrastructure that traps us into the problem. Like, uh-huh. like it, it, we can do everything else. We can do everything else well. But the, if we're still expanding highways and still building pipelines, then we're just bu- we're not building the future. We're just we're we're building more of the same, and 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 we're trapping ourselves into a system that that financially encourages uh, the opposite of what we need. And so until we do something other than that, I, I just don't have it. But uh, we're running out of time. So Lauren, uh, for your for your final thoughts, and then we'll go to break. Yeah, I guess I would just say if um, if listeners who, who reside in sort of the country we call Canada want to show support for this motion, um, you can get a petition offline or online. Um, it, it's on Peter Julian's website. Basically, get 25 signatures. That's really nothing. That's your coworkers. That's, that's your family over the dinner table at Christmas this year. And if you can get 25 signatures and submit it either to your member of parliament, whoever they are, or Peter Julian himself, that warrants it. That warrants the issue and the motion getting more time on the floor, which is really integral if we're going to sort of boost um, the, the the notoriety of this. Uh, so, yeah, don't be afraid to go online, find that parliamentary petition, get you and 24 friends to sign it, um, and, and hopefully buy this motion a little more time on the floor for discussion. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lauren, as always. Uh, and we'll, we'll see you in the new year. Have a great day, everyone. You too. Uh, All right, on to the music break. Son of the sun, son of the earth, soul of life, children of the world, daughters of starlight. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And uh, I'm going to talk about uh, India for a second. Yeah, do it. So Tim Buckley has published a piece for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists highlighting India's recent move away from coal, noting that solar prices there are now lower than ever thought possible, allowing India to poise itself to out-deliver 
on its Paris goals. The country has required a lot of coal in recent years, and the Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi had wanted to double coal mining in 2015, but is now looking at expanding renewable energy fivefold by 2030. Buckley writes that India was caught between <clears throat> major air pollution on the one hand and economic incentives on the other, like reverse auctions, uh, where companies compete to provide the lowest price for domestic renewables, which kept driving the price of wind and solar down, which ended up dropping 50% in 2017, making them cheaper than domestic or imported fossil fuels. Buckley writes, quote, India entered the first decade of the 21st century on a path of massive coal-fired power generation investment, with plans reaching over 600 gigawatts. India now exits this decade with over four-fifths of this high-emission, high-pollution investment intent now shelved, uncompetitive against zero-emissions renewable energy. What's more, the Indian government's plans include a progressive expansion of electric vehicles, uh, putting the country on a path to progressively reduce reliance on expensive high-emissions oil imports. End quote. Of course, the mineral mining needed for these technology operations continue to exploit and injure people worldwide. Yeah. So this, um, yes, yeah, it's interesting because there's a, a lot of talk, at least on this show, about about the sort of fall of coal, and especially in North America, we're seeing, uh, you know, we've seen bankruptcy after bankruptcy uh, in regards to, to coal-fired power plants and then also actually just coal companies in general. Um, and and But the, uh, there's also an article that came out in the last couple of days basically saying that coal didn't die, it just moved. Um, and and the and in that, it's, it's sort of the fact that we're burning more coal, significantly more coal now than we were in 2000. You know, and so this sort of idea that it's been... That, that you it's mean worldwide? Worldwide, of course. Um, and and so that's, it's interesting. Now, it has a market share, it has decreased because the energy has, has actually just so much expanded. But that's still important to note. Like, this is one of those things where it's like, we can talk about the ways that it has, it is, it is, it is, it is failing. And in, in, in more and more and often we're seeing, especially in, it's, it's, you know, it's non-competitive North America, basically without subsidies. And it's increasingly becoming non-competitive other places. But keeping that, keeping that whole thing in mind, um, highlights how important this is. You know, the fact that, 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 that we're seeing, um, especially India and, and China, which are the two sort of larger places where, where coal is growing most rapidly previously, uh, the more the more work that they do to not build more coal, you know, again, talk, to throw back to the infrastructure comment from the, the last segment, th- building a coal plant now is locking yourself into 20, 30 years at least of, of burning this stuff. And so it's not just the emissions that will be there tomorrow. It's emissions that will still be there, you know, you know, later. And so, and so that's news like this is good is very good news. And but it also should be tempered sort of the concept that like. There is a lot to reduce because we don't yet know exactly how to do all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this is but uh, without question. And it, but it also a good point that good to note that solar now has become so much cheaper that ev- that almost everywhere you're able it's able to compete with with coal, which is which is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's move on to, to to climate litigation. So Laura Zizzo reports for the National Observer that companies need to be on the lookout for the rising tide of climate litigation from which no polluter may be safe. She notes the recent uh, New York Supreme Court decision in favor of Exxon, which absolved them from fraud, but not from their climate responsibility, writing, quote, despite the Exxon decision, there is a clear global trend toward more climate-related litigation. That trend isn't limited to energy producers and is already crossing over to other industries. Similar allegations to the Exxon case have been made against three large UK insurance companies and an Australian bank that did not mention climate change in their annual reports. Companies in the airline, construction, and engineering services services industries have also been accused of breaching their duty to report material uh, climate-related information to shareholders. Zizzo also notes uh, how the Canadian securities administrators are now urging financial institutions to disclose the climate risks of investments uh, that they sell, which could lead to something possibly more than urging, and investors themselves are beginning to demand that companies disclose how climate change will affect their businesses. She writes, quote, investors are also looking for information on how companies are preparing to take advantage of the decarbonization of the economy a huge transition that may be much faster than that of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, it's, I feel like every once in a while you, there's this, 
some things sort of put into context or put into view the the disassociation that exists in our world today and and one of it is that is that we're seeing these stories time and time again about investors sort of pushing towards this conversation of how money is moving away from oil pretty clearly about how it's harder to find investments if you're you know even if you're the province of Alberta and then at the same time I believe it was earlier this week that Exxon put out its 2040 projections where they're saying that there's no decrease going to happen of its oil production Mm-hmm. And so its investors should be totally safe with it, with, with what's happening. And it's just one of those things where it's like, that's, th- that's the kind of thing where if they had, if they had to actually look back at the science and explain what the, what that would mean for the, for, for the world. And honestly, like if, for a lot of their, as they've expanded to places, you know, like there's a lot of actual oil infrastructure that exists in places that could be damaged by climate change. So it's not just the fact that that they're locking themselves into further, uh, you know, further warming. It's that their their actual wells themselves, uh, or or refineries, especially the, the refineries in Houston, are the are, are the go-to example here, um, that are very very um, uh, at risk to to major storms and to into climate related catastrophe mm-hmm. and so it's it, it's it's not it's 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 yet we live in this world right now where increasingly we're seeing um, you know, securities exchanges and and f- large finance require these conversations, and yet we're still allowing these reports to come out and 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 basing how much the valuation of companies basically on that concept, despite how removed from reality it really is. Mm. Uh, but uh, speaking of you know, I'm going to say speaking of removed from reality, but that's not exactly a great uh, great segue. To the next one, but uh, let's move on to the the third one. Why not, Stefan? Removed from reality. All right, let's do it. Let's enter the virtual. So Kathy Mulvey, Miles Allen, and Peter C. Frumhoff have written an article for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, again, in which they outline the ways fossil fuel companies are continuing to lie to us by pretending to be leading the, green, uh, the shift to green energy. They write, for instance, that Exxon has TV ads about algal biofuels. Chevron is offering electric charging at its gas stations. BP shows up on NPR talking about turning garbage into fuel. Shell has purchased a renewables-only electric utility. And the American Petroleum Institute boasts that it is leading the world uh, in emissions reductions. They write, quote, Big Oil also helped design a proposal that could get behind to establish carbon price in the United States. BP, ExxonMobil, and Shell pledged $1 million each in support of the Climate Leadership Council's carbon fee and dividend proposal, and ConocoPhillips pledged $2 million. End quote. Meanwhile, these same companies are not planning for any meaningful emissions reductions in the long term, which would lock us into catastrophic warming. The authors then point to shareholders' resolutions as potential sources of positive change, even if such resolutions have not pushed any company thus far in the direction of net zero emissions. Even so, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has, in response, made shareholder democracy of this sort much more difficult, and big oil companies have also been working to quash climate-related shareholder proposals. The authors argue for some much-needed metrics for measuring good practice in climate-conscious investing. They argue that companies must must disclose their absolute emissions and emissions intensities, their midterm targets for implementing and investing toward net zero, and they must have consistent, verifiable actions that support effective climate policies. They conclude, quote, These companies are among the few today that are actively investing in plants and equipment that will define the world in 2050. Investors have a right to know how these investments square with net zero emissions. If we want to avert disruptive climate change, we must not only reduce emissions, we must fully decarbonize our economy. And decarbonization has a hard and fast deadline. The Madrid Climate Conference has reminded us of the urgency of climate action by all sectors of society. Uh, so I've, I, did, I, had to, I had to do a quick bit of math just as a, as a, as a, for curiosity's sake, which is how much money $1 million really is for ExxonMobil to donate. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so Exxon made approximately in revenue uh, $279 billion in 2018. Mm-hmm. That's the reported revenue, mm-hmm. which means that $1 million is uh, – Point zero 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 three percent 
Um, of actually, well, I, I guess maybe two less zeros, maybe only ten zeros. And that's not even going to rapid decarbonization. That's going to a carbon fee and dividend proposal. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's the, the, like that is. It, uh, the, I had to actually flip my phone's calculator to able to now, now allow it to have enough decimal places accommodate those zeros. Yeah, exactly. Like this is this is meaningless. In their in the grand scheme of things, uh, for the amount of money that they're spending, you know, this is like there was a bunch of stuff going on uh, last uh, last few weeks about talking about how much a billion dollars is and how impossible it would be to earn a billion dollars, um, and and this is this is like and you know here's Exxon making twenty two hundred seventy nine billion dollars, uh, you know, as as revenue again income's twenty one billion. So if you want to really you know harp on me, fine, take two more zeros off that thing, uh, but like it's. It's it's as if it's it's less money than if you dropped a dollar. Like if you just if you give away a loony at any point in time, you have donated more money to whatever you donated than Exxon has to this to this idea. Like in 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 shares of gross profits. Like this is this is a meaningless amount of money that they're. But yet and yet they've really ranked. They've, they've really managed to 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 hang their hat on this. You know on this the fact that they've supported this fee and dividend program. Like a whole bunch of oil companies. This news story after news story about about them supporting this mission and pushing it forward. And and to spend a million dollars on it is is so paltry, in the grand scheme of things of of what that means to their company. That it's it's it's. It's almost defensive. It's it's almost a little bit um, uh, totally totally gone, um, and so uh, yeah. And so we'll figure this. Yeah, this is the, like this is a yeah man. It's 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 it totally out to lunch. Um, you got to keep ironing out that corporate veil. Yeah, yeah. To let that thing shine. Yeah, um, and so the yeah man. So there's less like oh, man. So here's. You know, this is actually if I if I can, I'm gonna take a half second because this is actually the this is the last show that we're gonna have. Uh, we're doing two pre-records for the next little bit, mm. um, and so if I can, if I can take a second to sort of like frame out a little bit. Honestly, I'm gonna use this as a quick frame out for the last you know the last decade because they're last. Honestly, this is actually this is kind of exciting about this actually, is that this is actually a um, this is actually a relatively exciting opportunity uh, for. The fact that we have had uh, ten years uh, of this show, we've had, this is the first decade that we've had. We've done we've done a show every every week. Mm-hmm. We've done we've done literally a show every week for the whole ten years uh, of uh, of tw- of this decade. Mm-hmm. And I think this story, we could have said this story every single year. Mm. Like the the story of. The fossil fuel companies are saying they're trying to do something and are trying to figure something out, but are failing to do so. Uh, is a is a story that is able to be told uh, again and again and again and again. It's not even that they're trying and they're failing. It's that they're pretending to try. Well, oh, exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I, yeah, no, no version are they trying. Um, you know, and, and there's there's some that have you know, again, as you've mentioned in this shorter short story, there's some that have in some ways picked up some pieces and some that have done some other bits of work, uh, but. But basically, this is this is where we're at, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and it's just constant that this is a thing. Uh, but but we're gonna so we're gonna go to a quick music break in a, in a half second, and then there was a, a listener uh, who asked us, uh, who emailed us, asking if we could do a bit of talking about how to talk to relatives uh, or climate deniers over the break. If you're gonna go home and talk to some people who might have some unsavory opinions or unideal opinions given the climate crisis that we live in, uh, how to have that discussion? Uh, and so we're gonna come back and, and talk a little bit about that. We were asked to talk about how to talk to people, uh, or, or maybe deal with people. Like, I, I, there's about about around concepts of uh, of how to have these conversations in, in your holiday season. How to have difficult or uncomfortable conversations with your relatives? Yeah, or or just deal with it. I, like, and I think that's the actual question. I think to me, honestly, the first piece of advice. So there's a there's a organization here in Toronto called Environmentum, uh, which uh, which is f- which is entirely focused around this concept of motivational interviewing. And and we actually had actually we had Vince uh, on of, of like about two years ago. We interviewed him for when we were doing some of the series about what you wanted to see in the in the world in the future. 
and 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 their their concept is is that basically I'm not suggesting you do this as a complete aside. I'm just saying that this is a this is if you want to go by actually what is relative. Like, let me take a half step back. The first question is, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to convince them to change their minds? Do you want to just survive their existence uh, in their in their in their sort of belie- their belittling of your beliefs? Because mm-hmm. I think those are two entirely different things. Because the 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 suggestion of you're trying to if you're trying to uh, actually change their minds, then the 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 right process is probably something more similar to what this motivational interviewing idea is, which is basically just constantly asking questions um, and and constantly bringing it back to sort of what to talking about what the, what they're about, what they believe in, how they want to bring it, and always just sort of reflecting back and giving them a lot of space to talk out their feelings and their thoughts, and then hopefully working in that way towards a place where they at least feel a little bit maybe more open to other concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's asking a lot of, 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 of you, <laughs> um, especially if it's asking a lot of you in a scenario where you're probably trying to just enjoy whatever, you know, whatever you're celebrating or, or just existing in your, in, your, in your family dynamics. And so I don't think, I'm not suggesting that everyone here go out and have a motivational interview with their uncles. Oh, let's just dwell uncles. in the mire of emotional discord for a second, Stefan. Yeah. Just have that be your holiday. Just, just allow it. Yeah, well, and, and that's and, and if you if that if your goal is to but you know try to really move the needle on any individual person, uh, you know that level that that kind of conversation is much more likely to succeed than than just you know than just you know dunking on them like they're a Twitter troll. Mm. Uh, however, you know dunking on them like a Twitter troll is probably more fun. Uh, more fun and I, yeah, allow me to, allow me to add an asterisk to that. I I I, I disagree a bit with what you just said, but only in the mildest possible mm. sense, um, which is that there is a uh, so I. I do think that it uh, might, this is again, obviously my personal view was sort of the idea here was that we'd sort of give our personal takes here. And the question, as it was literally asked, I won't ask, I won't either read it or out the person who wrote it, right. but it was much more along the, as written was much more along the tone of how do I deal with my pain in the butt, you know, uncle or whatever. Yes, that is true. And in that sort of applied sense, um, you know, uh, we need to sort of there. There is something to be said for making an example out of people, and I don't do this be, and not be for the sake of personal gratitude or winning <laughs> or scoring points. It's not about that. Uh, le- because uh, let me be really clear what I mean. I'm not. I'm not being flippant here. I'm being quite serious and quite literal, and and I have evidence for for my assertions. Um, there is a really strong track record of uh, something that very much models what Vince was doing. It's similar to motivational interviewing. And it's been taking place in the media and public discourse for a long time. And what would happen is they used to be in the form of debates. Now there's all sorts of different venues for it. But essentially what would happen is people would, you know, you'd confront ideas. And it often these confrontations when they were in debate formats, we now have more modern equivalents of these and there's now different versions of them. But essentially the idea was would you would often a lot of our beliefs are sort of caught up in assumptions or things we've had little positive assertions with over time. And so we're very confident of things that we don't necessarily actually have very good evidence for. It's just that our biases get confirmed and confirmed and confirmed. So the reason these formats were so useful is because what it allowed to do is sort of every once in a while, because we don't have the energy, we don't have the time, and we don't have the research, frankly, at hand or the resources to actually go and do a thorough deep dive on our beliefs we would occasionally have sort of surrogates go in in an almost sort of medieval style, go and sort of duke it out in public. The idea here is that you get that occasional unpacking of the things that lead into people's beliefs. Now, sometimes the people you're arguing with are monstrous. It is okay to tell a monstrous person they're a monster, not as an argument, but to like, you don't have to pretend that terrible people aren't terrible. The point is, is that there is still value in that depending on certain circumstances. This is this is me wrapping up. Mm. There is value in that in certain circumstances where there can be an audience because there's always there's always the alpha male, not literally alpha or literally male, but that character, that that big dog that stands up above all the other dogs, right? It's when there's a bunch of like like really like you know, uh, bad kids. And there's always one kid who's the bigger bully and it kind of goads the rest of them into doing it. Right. They wouldn't have thrown the egg at the cop car, but that one kid did it. Now they feel like they have to, right. There's that herd mentality. And so if you take out that leader, if you don't necessarily, you know, be your best self to that person, but you make it really clear that they're wrong to everybody standing behind them, you can in fact do valuable good work 
in changing those people's minds because you were able to confront their most honest, their most ugly, unfiltered beliefs and address them with reason in a way that maybe did sting, but it, you didn't say it to them. They get to experience that embarrassment and that humiliation and that realization that they had some pretty deep-seated beliefs that were dead wrong. They get to experience that in private, and that does work, and there is data to that. Yeah, yeah so, so, so I will... I- and not to disagree, uh, but to make one have one point that I, I just feel like I owe it to this random man who exists out there, which is that uh, it should be known and stated that the concept of alpha uh, alpha in packs of wolves uh, was actually was is is not a real thing. Um, no, it is, but like the boiling frog oh, thing, it's a it's a fake example that lines up. That's actually really about humans. Oh yeah, we just like, we just anthropomorphize to do it. So it is true about the thing we really mean, which is in all of those examples where we put animals. And we mean humans. Humans do that. Sure. But, but like, I, I just feel like because what, basically what happened as a quick f- fun history lesson about this weird story that took over the world is that this, this, this one particular scientist who under who, who studied wolf packs thought that he had uh, noticed this experience of an alpha taking over a wolf pack only to realize later that it was actually like a particularly weird experience. And then I spent the rest of his career trying to undo this so the study. Like he has published study after study after study being like, no, I'm sorry. I was wrong, and he was and clearly has, a failure at that too. <laughs> and he's just lost the—he's lost the, the the train. So we're talking about humans. So yeah. here's a better example, and I'll let you go. Sure. Uh, everyone knows this example. It's 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 an it's one of those things that's like a cultural. I don't know. It's like a cultural meme almost, but like in the pure sense of the meme, not in the, like the internet sense of the meme. It's mm-hmm. like a like a cultural remnant. Uh, is what do you do when you get in prison? Find the biggest person in the yard and you punch him. Or you're going to end up spending the right now that we can talk about all the sociology of that, but whatever. But at a high level, that 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 story we tell ourselves, that cultural story, is it's reflecting our human nature. Well, yes. And we need to we we need to if we're going to make real progress. This I swear is the last mm. thing I'll say. If we're going to make real progress about real human challenges that are caused by real humans, which are imperfect and complicated, we need to be real about humans are and how they work, and stop putting our egos and our and our saving face and all this stuff. We need to talk about how humans actually are and how they actually function, so that we can solve actual problems. Yeah, so, so I was going to what I was heading to was actually agreeing with you that the concept of actually speaking truth to power in front of other people I think is very effective. I yeah. think we can all have a good hearty agreement on speaking truth to power around this table. Yes, um, and and I, and I do think that there is there is definitely the the concept there of like if you are willing to have that conversation and actually sort of engage with someone um, in a in a moment when you know in a moment that that sort of force that sort of can. can bring out the sort of the underlying features like that's the other thing about this I find quite interesting is that if you can have a conversation which uh, the other way that I like that that's that can, can this conversation go is that you can slowly try to get the person to unpack what their actual belief is right like you can start you can start having the question of like okay so you were saying that you know we have that 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 the uh, you know that that Alberta must remain tied to oil and it's like okay well but why do you think that um, and, and, and 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 then so it's like okay well it's because people there are, rel- are relying on the fact that the oil economy is 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 their livelihoods and you're like okay uh, so what would your issue? What would the issue be with if we were able to support them in a way that they would still be surviving, uh, but but that we would not need the oil economy per se? And then that would sort of fall back to like, okay, well now, well say the, the response then is. I, I actually still think like a I don't think that would work or b well that's just a waste of a whole bunch of money and we don't have the amount of money to do that you know and then it's like okay well then why do you think that and you can certainly work back until you get to like there's usually one or two core beliefs that are coming out here and usually and the, the thing about right now I think is that more often not those core beliefs are either I just don't actually think it's a big problem um, or uh, I like the conveniences that that I'm being provided um, or I can't imagine a world that is different. And it's that last one that I'm going to end with because I think if we're going to if we're going to if we're going to sort of throw ourselves off into the into the new twentieth uh, you know the new decade, uh, we will have a show on the twenty seventh. Uh, it will be sort of pulled from some other some other some other stories we've had in the past and in, in, in a pre-record, so we won't be doing it live. Um, and so we'll use this sort of as a way to sort of throw ourselves into into twenty twenty, um, and in the in the twenties generally, which is that. You know, if there is, if it which the question of being able to imagine a future is to me so often lost in this conversation. 
you know, we've tried, uh, you know, different, uh, every once in a while on the show, we bring in a, we, we do a, sh- a full show trying to match in the future. We've kept, we keep trying to throw that in from time to time, but it, the holistic changes necessary is so hard to see and so hard to imagine yourself in that, that there's an inherent fear uh, I think in in everyone, you know, and, and, I, and I think even those of us who advocate uh, for this different world have a bit of that sort of fear of the unknown in us, that that sort of that sort of keeps you from from really being able to break into the what what a different world could be. You know, it's, it's that sort of preaching the devil you know and, 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 and being scared of the devil you don't, um, because, you know, any future is not going to be perfect. You know, as we've covered in, in on the show previously, a there's no there's not necessarily there's many versions of a green new deal that remain to still be you know reliant on extractive industries. You know the 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 amount of times we've seen these different. Like right now, there's a whole thing going on about like the, all of the tech companies are currently using pro, are knowingly using child labor in and uh, in, in the DRC uh, right now to get these precious minerals, which will be required for for a lot of these technological futures. And so there's and so there's moment after moment after moment that we have to address. And and I think we get stuck often in not being able to imagine what the future is. This lack of imagination doesn't just play out in what we think the whole society is going to turn into. It's the habits that we continue every day. Right. So we have an ongoing genocide in this country, which is not just upheld by our general acceptance of the way things are, but the way we go about every single moment of our day habitually, which through lack of imagination remains the same. Yeah, and and we and yeah, and we 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 accept, um, you know, and I say we. I'm including myself in this. We we accept so much uh, of 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 the of, of of the of the horrors of this world because it because because we because you sort of like you know it's it's because it, it's very hard say to own a uh, own clothing that is not in some ways harming people. Uh, it's very hard, uh, you know, in in in. We're not. We've built a society that sort of makes you complicit immediately, and this is not to sort of end on the sort of note of of that, you know, that we can't do better. Uh, it, but it's. I think it's a. It's a, once you recognize just where we're at now, hopefully that frees us from that fear for what we could do instead. And it frees us from the banality of our current situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I think if we can, if we can, I'll leave on, the last note I'll leave on is, if there's one thing this last decade has taught me, uh, it is that, it is to believe in the power, uh, the power of building strong communities and deep roots and ties. You know, uh, if, 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 to me, the work of the, of of the environmental movement is the work of community building. An open-minded and imaginative community building. Yes. Yes, um, because you know, the, because community will act as resilience against the worst harms of climate change. Uh, community acts as perhaps the best ways to reduce our consumption and act as a mitigation for climate change. And community can give you the purpose that you're currently trying to fill uh, with with the level of consumption that we see. And so, if we can build strong ties, if we can find ways to to, to build connections in deeper community, I think we can go and make 2020 and the the 20s generally the decade it has to be uh, to to save this world, um, or at least to steer us into a path that we can better call home. Uh, so with that, uh, let's go. To, we'll see you all. Uh, we'll, we'll hear us again next week, but we'll see you all live in 2020. Have a great green rest of this decade. See y'all real soon.